I'm kind of a science fiction fan. Yeah. Um, like probably like a six out of 10. Like I didn't go to Corticon. Uh, my kids did. <laughs> but, but, I, but I do follow the shows. Uh, and there's this, uh, there's this shot, the opening shot in Star Wars Revenge of the Sith, which is the best of the prequel movies, um, is, is this planet, and there's this giant spaceship, and these two little fighters come over this spaceship, and they kind of fly along this spaceship, and the music's kind of ominous, but you don't really know what's going on, and you follow these two little fighters just kind of weaving over the top of this spaceship for a while. And then they slowly kind of roll over the back of this ship, and the camera follows them, and the camera reveals on the other side of this ship just this massive space battle. There's all these big ships and little ships and laser beams and craziness. And it's this big reveal that, oh my gosh, we're in a big battle. And this text this morning is going to help us see that we are in a big battle. There is a cosmic battle raging between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil right now, every day among us, and we don't notice it. But look at what is happening here in Matthew 12. We just, we just finished a section a couple weeks ago where um, Jesus had been doing some, some teaching He'd been um, doing some miracles. He was saying some things that the religious leaders didn't like. So they decided they were going to kill him. And then last week we talked about how he just kind of embodied this idea of the servant of the Lord that we read about from the prophet Isaiah. And he's, he's humble and he's quiet and he's just going about his business doing the work of God. And so continuing this story, Matthew writes, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man could both speak and see. So the first thing I want us to recognize about this battle that's raging, it's going to flare up in this scene in Matthew, is that it's focused on people. Like, for the most part, the enemies of God want to destroy people. We are God's uh, pinnacle of creation. The book of Genesis where the story starts says we are made in God's image. There is a special role that we play in the creation, and God's enemies want to destroy people. And so there's this man who has been taken over by a demon, by a spiritual being he has lost his, un- his ability to speak and his ability to see. And pe- someone, someone who loves him brings him to Jesus, and Jesus heals him. And Matthew, Matthew almost doesn't really care about this. Like he, it's just kind of the starting point of our story. It's not a, we don't know anything about this man. We don't know who brought him. We don't know how Jesus healed him. We just know that he was healed. And then the crowds that always surround Jesus, all the crowds were astounded and said, could this be the son of David? 
Son of David is what's called a messianic title. The word Messiah means savior. And it's this, this figure that, that the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible talks about pretty regularly, that, that there's somebody coming onto the scene that's going to make things right. It's going to heal diseases and cure the blind and cast out demons and bring prosperity to God's people. And the people are waiting for this person to come, this leader, this king. And so as Jesus continues to work these miracles and teach with authority, and and he's, remember, he's just kind of wandering around northern Israel, walking and speaking and teaching. He doesn't have a YouTube channel or a Twitter feed. There's no mass media involved here. It's just him kind of meeting people and doing things. And as his reputation begins to grow, the crowd starts to go like, could this be it? Could this be the guy, the one we've been waiting for? Verse 24, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man drives out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. So the Pharisees, as you recall from a couple weeks ago, they want to kill Jesus. They want to kill Jesus because Jesus is threatening their power. The Pharisees are the religious leaders of the nation. The, the Pharisees have the authority to say, this is how you're supposed to live your life. And if you don't live your life, we have, the, we have your life the way we want you to live your li- life. We have the power to excommunicate you from God's people. We can kick you out of the temple. We can ostracize you. They have great power and authority in the society, and Jesus is a threat to that. And the ironic thing, and we'll come back to this later, is that the Pharisees, out of everyone in the country, the Pharisees should have seen Jesus for who he was. They were, they were the Bible scholars. They knew the Old Testament. They knew the prophecies about the coming king, and, and they should have seen Jesus. But they didn't recognize him. But look at what they say. They don't say, oh, he's a trickster. He's playing with smoke and mirrors. He's, there's a, there was a non-demon-possessed man behind the curtain, and he swapped him out real quick. That's not, what, that's not what they accuse him of. They accuse him of real power, but real power coming from Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. They don't deny that Jesus has power. They don't deny that something real happened here. And this is, this is a really interesting apologetic. I'm kind of a fan of apologetics, kind of making a case for the, the faith. And um, for about 400 years, Jewish people talked about this. And you can look up some of their writings, and they would, they would talk about Jesus, and they would call him a magician that led the people astray with his dark magic. And they couldn't deny his power because it was, it was real. Something was going on. But the interesting thing is, for this to be in the Bible, this is evidence that what we read here is reliable, because it's what's called embarrassing testimony. Because there's a, there's a theory going around that says that Matthew, he was just trying to get rich, so he thought he'd start a religion. Him and his buddies, John and Mark and Peter and all these guys, they got together, and they're going to start a new religion, and they're just going to make it up and become famous 
And so they wrote these books about Jesus. Maybe Jesus was a real person, maybe he wasn't, but they just wrote this down to kind of stir up their own fame. But if I was Matthew, and I'm trying to paint a picture of this amazing leader that I want you to believe in, and you're Jewish, I have no motivation to write down, oh, all of your leaders think this guy was um, demon-possessed. All of your leaders think this guy got his power from Satan. There's, There's no good reason to make that up. And this and many other things in the New Testament that seem a little odd are actually evidence that this book can be trusted because the only reason Matthew would have wrote that down is because that's what actually happened. That Jesus encountered the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. And if you've grown up in the church, everybody hates the Pharisees. They're the men in black on the flannel graph. But in the day... Everybody loved the Pharisees. Everybody respected the Pharisees. They were the heroes of their society. And to say, yeah, the Pharisees hated Jesus and they thought he was working with Beelzebul, that's a a pretty hard sell if you're trying to convince a bunch of Jewish people to follow Jesus. And so the only good reason for this to be included in the story is because this is actually what happened. Beelzebul means Lord of the house. And it's a slang term for God's enemy. We call him the devil, um, the Satan. I've talked about it before. I've become convinced that Satan is not a proper name, so it's better to call him the Satan. And the the theory behind that is um, Satan means accuser. And much like when we're dealing with a mass shooter in the United States. We don't want to publicize their name. We don't want to give them fame and glory by telling everyone what their name is. The Bible very frequently doesn't name God's enemies. If you go back to the Exodus story, who's the Pharaoh? He's the Pharaoh. We don't know who the Pharaoh is. Not because Moses didn't know the name of the Pharaoh, not because nobody knew the name of the Pharaoh, but because in the writing of the Old Testament, God said, we're not going to name that guy. We're not going to give him the, the um, dignity of being named. And I think something similar goes on with God's greatest enemy. He's called many different titles, the accuser of the brethren, the devil, the dragon, but I don't think he's actually named. So Beelzebul is another slang title that was floating around in Judea at the time, and it means Lord of the house. Verse 25, knowing their thoughts, because it doesn't sound like they're saying this out in the open. They're just whispering it. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus told them, every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And so he starts talking about these kingdoms, these two kingdoms. And and when you see kingdom in Scripture, Don't think of some spiritual, out there, ethereal idea. Think of real, gritty, dirty, geopolitical kingdoms. A kingdom has a king. It has a government. It has land. It has subjects. Think about 
the Lord of the Rings, if you're into that. There are ki- the kingdom of Mordor and the kingdom of men. There, there's like maps that show this is this territory and that's that territory. If you watch Game of Thrones, which you shouldn't, you're a Christian. Same thing. Or even like bringing it into reality, the United States versus the USSR during the Cold War. There's these two kingdoms at war with each other. And when Jesus uses the word kingdom, he means something similar. He's not talking about some fanciful thing out there. He's talking about a real battle that's really going on in this moment. See, Jesus believes that supernatural spiritual beings exist and that some of them are willing and able to do you harm. And we are are at a great disadvantage because we do not believe this in 21st century America. Uh, Clint Arnold, I found this quote, and he says, on this topic of of, of spiritual beings, some of us suffer a double-mindedness. Although mental assent is given to the likelihood that evil spirits exist, since it is affirmed in the Bible, in reality, it makes no practical difference in the way we live our day-to-day lives. So if, if you're a Christian here and you believe the Bible, you're like, yeah, of course, demons exist. Of course, the Satan exists. Of course, God's enemies are supernatural beings. But, but really, what does that have to do with me? That's super weird. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to be weird. But see, Jesus believed that this was a reality that he was dealing with on a daily basis. Imagine living in a world where we completely disregard chemical poisons. Like, think about lead or radon or carbon monoxide or asbestos. I, I saw a, a, a picture of asbestos snow on social media this week. And this old-timey box of flakes of asbestos that you sprinkle on your Christmas tree. And it looks like snow, and it keeps your Christmas tree from, you know, catching on fire because it's fireproof. <laughs> And people did this. Like, asbestos was everywhere. And then somebody went, oh, shoot, it's killing people. But what if we just didn't know that or just didn't believe it? Like, I don't know. Sometimes people just die of stuff. You know, Jim was working on his car with the garage door closed, and he just fell over. I don't know what happened. a reality that you can't see, you don't know is there, but it's dangerous. And this is, this is what Jesus is bringing to light for us, that there's this reality, this spiritual world, these, these beings that want to do us harm. And he says, so by accusing me of working for the enemy... That's a pretty silly argument. He says, if, if the enemies are on the inside, the city or the kingdom or the house is going to fall apart. Anybody that's seen a spy movie knows this. You know, the spy goes undercover and, and works for the other side and takes it apart from within. That's the, that's the way it works. And, and if, he says, if, if, if Satan has this man, this demon-possessed man, it, he belongs to him. It serves no purpose for me to rescue this man out from his grip. That just doesn't make any sense. 
And then he gives another argument. He says, and if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. He says, there's other guys, there's other Jewish men running around the nation casting out demons. What power are they using? And so he says, it it can't just be that the fact that I can cast out demons means that I'm working for the enemy or you're condemning your own Jewish exorcists as well. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. So Jesus points to the Spirit as the source of his power. Remember, we've been talking about how Jesus isn't primarily operating as the Messiah by the power of the Son of God. Philippians 2 says he set that power aside and humbled himself and became a human. He's primarily operating by the power of the Spirit of God, which, by the way, lives inside every one of us that's a follower of Christ. And he says there's another kingdom that's advancing against the kingdom of Beelzebul. He says, my kingdom, the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I'm actually working by the power of the Spirit, the kingdom of God is here. And this this brings up something called, um, uh, the big fancy word is inaugurated eschatology. And what this means, you may have heard the, the phrase already but not yet. And so you might say, well, if the kingdom is here, if Jesus brought the kingdom in Matthew 12, then why is stuff so lame in my life? Why are things so broken? Why do I look at the news and the world around me and things are wrong? Um, Bible scholar Fred Zaspel has this interesting quote that, that I think is helpful. He's talk, he talks about World War II uh, May 8th, 1945 was the end of World War II. June 6th, 1944 was the D-Day invasion. And uh, Dr. Zaspel says, in Operation Overlord, some 1,000 ships, the largest armada ever to set sail, carried some 200,000 soldiers across the English Channel to France, where they stormed the coasts of Normandy. It was only the beginning of a military buildup that Germany could never have stopped. Anyone watching objectively knew that it was not, o- that was, it was not only a matter of time, not if, but when. The amassing of such military personnel and material, the relentless crushing of German factories from American aircraft, the ever-narrowing of Germany's supply lines, all this declared that the difference between D-Day and VE Day was just a matter of time. And for this reason, many have said that it was on June 6th, 1944, that the war was over. So what he's saying is that on D-Day, there was a lot of fighting that had to be done to win that war. But looking back, that was the point of no return. The war was going to end. And this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is here. Jesus is going to go to the cross. Jesus is going to defeat the enemy, ascend to the Father, rule on his right hand, and one day return and set up his kingdom in full. On that day, the war will be over. 
But on this day in Matthew chapter 12, the war had already been won. Jesus already beat the enemy. And so we live in this world where much like the soldiers at Normandy, they didn't think the war was over. They were in the midst of a terrible battle. But looking forward, the war had already been won. And so we live our lives in this space where Jesus has already won us the victory, but we have some work to do. And he gives this this image of the strong man. Remember, Beelzebub means Lord of the house. I'm going into the strong man's house and I'm tying him up. I'm binding him and I'm plundering his possessions. I'm taking his things. This demon-possessed man belonged to the enemy and Jesus took him back. Not only is Jesus fighting the battle with the devil, he says he's stronger than the devil. If you're going to beat the strong man, you have to be stronger than he is. When I was in um, junior high, I went to a two-week uh, worldview camp, which sounds as geeky as it was. But we talked about, um, you know, Darwinism and communism and materialism and all kinds of fun stuff with a bunch of other geeky kids for two weeks. And it was, a bunch, it was junior hires and high schoolers, and there was a senior in high school there, and his name was Avion Rainbow Heaps. His mom was a hippie. And you'd make fun of that, except he was huge. And I was a little bit skinnier and a lot shorter in junior high. And at one point during the camp, we talked about Jesus as a shepherd and his sheep. And so he thought it would be funny to treat me like a sheep and throw me over his shoulder multiple times throughout the week and spin me around in circles and laugh. And I I kicked and I hit and I screamed and there was nothing I could do because he was just way too strong. Jesus is way too strong for this enemy. He is marching forward. His kingdom is advancing. And the strongholds of the devil are falling. Verse 30, anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the one to come. So Jesus says pretty distinctively in verse 30, there are two sides to the cosmos. There is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the Satan. Jesus says we we talk a lot in, in our modern context about being on the right side of history. You know, what, where are you going to stand on this issue? What are you going to think about this? Are you going to be on the right side of history? Jesus says he is the only one on the right side of history. His kingdom is advancing. 
and there is a choice to make. Anyone who is not with him is against him. This is, this is hard for us in 2019. Uh, this is an old survey. It was from 2008. But in 2008, 57% of evangelicals said that many religions lead to eternal life. They agreed with that statement in this Pew Forum survey. And, and I think they did that because we want that to be true for a lot of reasons. Like, we, we love people. We want good for people. And also, we don't really want to tell people about Jesus. If I'm being honest, most of us don't really want to share our faith. We want our, our neighbors who are Muslims or Hindu or um, religiously unaffiliated or whatever to just kind of, we want to be nice to them. And we think, you know, talking about Jesus and saying, like, you need to make a decision to follow Christ, that's going to ruin the relationship. And I don't really want the hassle. And I don't know enough. And I'm scared. And all the reasons we have for not wanting to tell people about Jesus it's just way easier to think, you know what? They're doing their thing and they're going to be fine. If we want to defend the exclusivity of the Christian faith, that's hard. In the culture we live in, to stand up and say Jesus is the only way, that doesn't make friends, that makes enemies. We don't want to do that. That's just not good. That doesn't sound fun. There's this, there's this uh, parable that's used quite often in this kind of um, conversation called the blind man and the elephant, or the blind men and the elephant. Um, and it, it's, it goes like this. There's, a, there's an elephant, and there's some blind men. And all of the blind men go up to touch the elephant. And one of the blind men touches the tusk of the elephant and says, El- the elephant is hard and smooth. And another blind man goes up and touches the tail of the elephant and says, the elephant is long and wiry. And another blind man touches the ear of the elephant and says, no, the elephant is flexible and smooth. And another blind man touches the side of the elephant and says, no, the elephant is like a wall, hard and bumpy. And the king looks out his window at the blind men and the elephant in the courtyard below, and he laughs at them and says, you foolish blind men, you don't see that you're only touching part of the elephant. And the moral of that story for the religious pluralist is that every religion in the world is touching the truth, but only part of the truth. And we all have a little bit of the access of what ultimate reality really looks like. G.K. Chesterton, who is an apologist in Britain, doesn't think that's correct. He says, the idea that religions of the earth differ in rites and forms, but they are the same in what they teach is false. It is the opposite of the fact. The religions of the earth do not greatly differ in rites and forms. They do greatly differ in what they teach. Almost every great religion on earth works with the same external methods, with priests, scriptures, altars, sworn brotherhoods, special feasts. They agree in the mode of teaching. What they differ about is the thing to be taught. So Chesterton says, if you really look at all of the different faiths that claim to have access to God, they all have a completely different view of what ultimate reality looks like. And it's not just parts of reality, it's all of reality, and they're contradictory to one another. And the problem with the blind man and the elephant is for me to use that, I have to take the position of the king. 
in the story, if, if I am going to accuse the religions of the world of only seeing part of reality, I have to be the one that can see all of reality to make that claim. I don't think I'm qualified <laughs> to see all of reality to make that claim. But Jesus, Jesus makes that claim. He says, anyone who is not with me is against me. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to God except through me. And then he does one better. He doesn't just say it and teach it. He proves it. He predicts his own death and resurrection, and he actually rises from the dead. And so I'm, I'm going to lean on Jesus a little heavier than I am on the pluralistic society that we live in. And so he says, a choice has to be made. Are you with me or are you against me? And then he goes into this thing about how there's a sin that, that will be forgiven, but this other sin is not going to be forgiven, and that really freaks people out. How many, how many of you have read this and are like, oh man, did I commit the sin? Have I done this? Am I never going to be forgiven? What is this thing? We call it the unpardonable sin. And the, the first thing to know about the unpardonable sin is like if you're worried about it, if you're like, I really love Jesus, but I don't know, maybe I committed the unpardonable sin and he doesn't love me anymore, you have not committed the unpardonable sin. Like the very fact that you're pursuing God means that you have not uh, blasphemed God. In order to understand what Jesus is saying, we have to look at it in the context of his discussion with the Pharisees. What are the Pharisees doing? They are, they are God's men in Israel. They're, they're, they're teachers, they're leaders, they know everything there is to know about religious society in Israel. They memorized their scriptures. They knew what the Messiah would be like. They had every reason to trust in Jesus. But because he threatened their power, they knowingly refused to follow him. They came to a place where they recognized the power. There's something's going on here, and we're going to blame it on the demons, even though that doesn't hold any water, which Jesus walked us through. I know something is going on here. I know Jesus has power. This is real, and I don't want it. There's, there's not a specific thing all throughout the Bible. God tells us that no matter what we do, no matter where we've been, no matter what gross, terrible sins we think we've committed, God is always gracious and always ready to call us back and always ready to forgive us. But this warning from Jesus is real. He says, there's only two sides. There's my side and the enemy's side. If you're, not, if you're not with me, you're against me. You need to pick one. You need to take a side. And I think that God is incredibly gracious to people who are questioning and searching and seeking. And if you're here and you're like, yeah, I, I like this Jesus guy, but I'm not really sure about following him. And I'm, I have questions. And what about this? And what about that? You're in a good place. 
be, surround yourself with God's people and ask those questions. Ask the questions of Christ, other Christians. We don't always know the answers, but we shouldn't be afraid of the questions, and this book can handle it. But at the end of the day, we're going to be a citizen of Jesus' kingdom or not. Pastor Josh White uh, says, perpetual seekers must become eventual finders. Look back up at the crowd in this story. They're, they've been walking with Jesus and seeing him do things, and now they're finally going, wait a minute, is this maybe the son of David? And you might think like, yeah, how, why did it take you so long? Sometimes it takes us a little longer. But at some point, you have to come to a place where you go, Jesus is real, Jesus is king, and I want to follow him or not. The warning from Jesus is the more you know, the more you experience, and then ultimately reject, there's nothing left for you. I like how N.T. Wright says it. He says, once you declare that the only remaining bottle of water is poisoned, you condemn yourself of dying of thirst. There's one bottle of water left and you say, nope, it's poison. Then there's nothing else left. This is what the book of Hebrews is all about. I want to read you one verse in Hebrews. Hebrews is written to a group of Jewish Christians who became followers of Jesus, and then their life, their lives fell apart. They got fired from their jobs. They got ostracized by their community. Their families disowned them. They got beaten and imprisoned, and it was awful. And Hebrews is written to say, don't give up on Jesus. And all throughout the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, believe in Jesus, trust in Jesus. And in Hebrews 10, starting verse 26, talking about disbelief, he says, for if we deliberately go on sinning, not believing, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who is trampled on the Son of God, who is regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and who has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know the one who has said, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And as you, as you read that, if you go, that, if that feels really, really heavy to you, it's supposed to. But the warning is, don't turn your back on Jesus because there is no other 
path to life. And if you're, I don't know, I don't know where everybody is at this morning. I think some of us are here and we've followed Jesus for years and years and years. And some of us maybe for a short time and, and maybe others are just here because they got invited or, or are seeking and searching. And, and those are all good places to be moving towards an understanding of who Jesus is. But as you, as you seek, as you grow, as you learn, oh, God loves me. I, I've, I've been made in his image. Oh, yeah, the, the, the gross, nasty brokenness in my heart is real. But Jesus died to fix it, to heal it, to restore it. He wants to adopt me into his family, make me one of his children, and give me an inheritance for the future. The more and more you absorb that and learn that and grow in that, and then just go, I'm out. I'm, I, I don't want to do it anymore. I, I'm just, I, I understand who Jesus is. I, I know the truth, but I just don't want it. That's a dangerous place to be. It's what the book of Hebrews warns against. And it's what Jesus is warning against in Matthew. If you've come to a place where you are recognizing like the Pharisees did that this is real and I hate it and it has to be stopped. There's no, there's no other hope for that. There's no other place to go. But the flip side to that is just the glorious grace of God, right? Like we are all broken. I mean, we can't, we can't deny that. We look inside ourselves, we look outside in the world, and things are broken and terrible in many ways. And the message of the gospel is that Jesus came to fix it. It's like the going, going to the store for like I don't know, a cleaning product. And there's like a whole shelf of random cleaning products. And I've got this one specific stain. And I don't know if any of these things work. Some of them probably don't do anything. Some probably work great on things that I don't have a problem with. It's confusing. It's hard. But if somebody says, hey, this thing is specifically made for this problem that you have, and it's the only thing that works for this kind of stain. You're not going to go like, well, I'm going to go to the store and wander the aisles for two hours anyway. You go, well, thank you. I want that. And that's the grace of God in the gospel. Jesus says, I am the solution to the problem that you have. Become one of my people. Join my kingdom. Turn from living for your own ends and follow me. That's the solution. And that's what we celebrate at the communion table every week. This is, this is a meal, a picture of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus went to the cross. He died 
in our place for our sins. And in this ironic twist in Scripture, he defeated the enemy as the enemy thought he was winning. The devil was thrilled when Jesus died on the cross. We got him, finally. We beat him. But the whole plan was that Jesus was going to defeat death by going through it and rising from the dead. And and the, the bread represents his body broken on the cross, and the wine or the juice represents his blood shed. And it gives us this opportunity to come to the table and take the bread and the cup and remember what he's done for us in the past, to remember what he's doing for us in the present. We're given the gift of the Spirit. Remember, Jesus said that he's working by the power of the Spirit and he gives us the Spirit. And so we get that power. And as we take these things into our body, we're reminded that we've taken the Spirit of Jesus into our soul. And then it reminds us of the future because Jesus, when he instituted this meal, said, the next time I eat this with you, it's going to be when the kingdom comes on VE Day, when the war is over, when the last battle has been fought. We're all going to sit down together and rejoice. And so we're going we're gonna to sing a little bit more. The communion table is going to be open. And I would just encourage you to just ask the question, where am I? Am I, am I following after Christ? Am I, am I seeking? Am I unsure? Do I have questions? If you don't find yourself secure in Christ this morning, do something about it. Talk to somebody. Ask your questions. Get some answers. The Jesus and the Scriptures can bear hard questions. You don't need to be afraid of that. But as you hang around God's people, your understanding of who Jesus is will grow. And at some point, we all have to decide, am I, am I part of his kingdom or am I part of the other one? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for just a a heavy reminder that we have a choice to make. There aren't a lot of options. There's one option, and that's you, Jesus. God, give give us clarity. Help us discern our hearts, our motives. If, If we think we're following you, but our motives are wrong, our hearts are wrong, if we're faking it, God, reveal that to us. If we're following like from, from a distance, draw us closer to you. God, protect our hearts for, from becoming like the Pharisees where we, we know the reality of who you are and what your kingdom stands for and we just don't want it. Soften our hearts by the power of your spirit and just give us more of you. Help us see you more clearly God, 
turn us into people that are more and more like Jesus day by day. And we need your power. We need your grace. God, if any of us are, are like the crowd and we're just kind of going, wait, maybe, maybe this is real. God, stoke that flame. Make us yearn for more of you. Make us thirsty for more of you. God, as we remember your body broken and your blood shed, I pray that we would just rest in the soberness of that, the price that was paid for our salvation. We wouldn't take it for granted. In Jesus' name. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.